for me, archaeology is just another way of looking at, at societies. So there were typically female roles and typically male roles. Um, but how we consider those roles, that's our modern interpretation. is a warrior that's traveled down to Kiev and, and maybe even Constantinople. So she's very much in the middle of the world that she was active in. What amazes me is that to some people it's so important that this is not a woman that they can explain it in almost any way. <laughs> to us it's really interesting of course, but we, we're Viking nerds. Welcome to Saga Briefs, where we tell the stories behind the sagas. I'm Dr. Andrew Fringer, and joining me today is Dr. Charlotte Hayden-Stierner Johnson from the Department of Archaeology and Ancient History at Uppsala University in Sweden. She is a researcher and contributor to the Viking Phenomenon Research Project, but you may recognize her name as that of lead author of the recent article, A Female Viking Warrior Confirmed by Genomics, published in the American Journal of Physical Anthropology. The article investigates the skeletal remains found in grave BJ581 of the famous Burka warrior long thought to be a man. As I understand it, suspicions about the sex of the skeleton emerged quite a while back, but Dr. Hayden Stanner Johnson and her team have now confirmed through genomic-wide sequencing that the famed Burka warrior is, in fact, a woman. I don't think it's surprising that this discovery, or at least this revision of traditional conclusions about the Burka warrior, has attracted a great deal of attention. Now, Charlotte, thank you for being here with me today. Thank you. Yeah, before we get started into the story of this uh, female in the grave, uh, BJ581, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, well, I'm an archaeologist, a researcher, and I live outside Stockholm in Sweden. Mm -hmm. And I've been specializing in, in Vikings and the Viking warriors since my thesis that I um, defended in 2006 called the Birka Warrior. And I've been excavating on Birka for over 10 years, both uh, the martial structures, the fortifications, etc., uh, and also some of the graves and the settlement area that is called the Black Earth. And, and what drew you into Viking Age archaeology in particular? What do you love about that? Well, it's a difficult question. I, I, uh, I've always been interested in, in people and in how societies work. So I think for me, archaeology is just another way of looking at, at societies, some almost like a, a political science kind of yeah. topic. Um, and, and I got the chance to be one of the excavators. My supervisor had a, a large or an extensive research project, and uh, I got to be part of the team. And then it was very difficult not to continue because it's a fantastic place. Great. And, and of all the projects that you've worked on, uh, what, what do you think is the most exciting one? You know, when you're in a project, that one is the best one. Yeah, so it keeps changing, actually. And, and now I'm in this great extensive project. It's a 10-year research project where we try to understand why the Viking Age began and, and what were the driving forces and, and uh, what did society look like that eventually developed into these Viking raids and, and people moving uh, quite distant from their homelands mm -hmm. during three centuries, more or less. Um, and, and I mean, this is a time period that is the, the end of prehistory in Scandinavia. So it's it's really not really modern time, but, but on the brink of that, it's a, a yeah. period of transition. So it's, to me, it's fascinating. And what can the archaeological data tell us about that, the, the beginning of the Viking Age? And... Well, we, we are just in the beginning of this project, sure. but we try to um, assemble pieces. We try to understand different archaeological contexts and to look at what, what do we have in terms of material culture and, and 
what does the imports look like, uh, but also how are people moving uh, during this time period and, and can we see a continuation of movement from earlier periods? We know that there was a, a climate, a, a drastic climate change in the beginning of the sixth century right. uh, that had a great impact on Scandinavia because it's already in the periphery and colder climate than we already have is is crucial or it will become crucial to to um, society so we can see that there's a great decline in the beginning of the sixth century and and after that things seem to happen uh, people start behaving in slightly different manners um, and the contacts with the uh, the world outside become more and more extensive they're not all hostile mm-hmm. although some of them are of course of course yeah um, your paper opens up with a comment about the many stories of female Vikings. And I was wondering, could you tell us about some of your favorite female Vikings? <laughs> well, um, I'm, I must stress I'm not uh, a saga specialist in of any course. way, but I I, I really like uh, Gudrun in Atlakvida. Mm-hmm. Um, not as a person. She was apparently not a very nice person to know, but she's a very interesting character and uh, uh, she gets quite a lot of, of space within that saga, uh, and and she is a strong person. Uh, and and what what we know from Scandinavian society and and the way you should live your life was to be a strong person, to make your own decisions, to be. You shouldn't rely on anyone else. It was up to you. And and she really shows those qualities. Um, in a very interesting way, then in a terrifying way. Uh, she, of course, she um, she's married to, to Atli and uh, her husband has her two brothers uh, killed. And in revenge, she serves her husband the flesh of her two sons or their mm-hmm. two sons. Uh, and, and then she eventually kills him. So she's she, it's a quite drastic um, story. But in the end of that story, we also get somewhat of an explanation to why she is able to do this. And, and it just states that she had been out more or less raiding with her brothers and her father. So uh, she'd been one of the guys previously. Mm-hmm. And she, she'd been, what do you say, culturalized into this kind of behavior and i i think that's an interesting it's a story it's a saga it's not history but it's it's still an interesting aspect of, of um, how they considered people should be but also that this could be a woman as just as any man yeah one of the things that i think is is quite fascinating is that we have references to um, female warriors every once in a while in either saga literature or in the histories uh in the gesta de norm for example we see evidence of of lagertha the popular character from the vikings television show um but it seems like in the minds of academics we we tend to dismiss these uh viking female warriors as a kind of mythology and i i wonder why you think that is i i really don't no, I think that it has somewhat to do with the bad press that the sagas got uh, in in earlier research. First, earlier researcher tended to believe everything was true that right. was in the sagas, and, and then we had a long period when we questioned the use of the sagas for any historical purposes at all, and now they're regaining some of of their um, credibility, I think. Mm-hmm. But somewhere in that process, I think that the, the female warriors were lost. Yeah. And, and now we have things that we do think are quite uh, historical, historically accurate within the sagas and others that we just see as, as myth. Uh, and, and maybe it has to do with the fact that at least in, in this part of the world, we're very far from war. Uh, mm. Fortunately, I mean that's that's a good thing. But it it's become, um, if I say a romantic notion, that sounds bad. But I mean it in a in a sense that it, we have a vision of what war was and and who fought wars. And we, even though we know that today, if if a country is struck by war or a, a group of people, everybody is involved. Uh, women, right. men, old people, children. Uh, Ward doesn't take any concern about who you are or what age you are. And But in our society, in Sweden today, for example, we have a, a professional army and they can decide who gets to be uh, a soldier. So we're quite distant from from the notion of, of actual war, I think. And, and right. maybe 
the female warrior got caught in in that perception as well. Now, there, there is something about the idea of the female warrior, uh, especially in the Viking Age, that captures the imagination and it drives us to seek confirmation, at least in the modern age. Um, I think in popular culture, especially people desire to see that. Um, why do you think we are so fascinated by the idea of the, the female warrior? Well, that's a good question. Um, maybe because there is an element of, of saga and myth within it and, and all cultures have these stories about female warriors like the Amazons, for example. Um, So maybe that's part of it. But of course, in in a modern society, and especially in in like a feminist view, you would like the woman to be empowered and and to be considered to be as as strong as as the men. Uh, That's easy to understand. But that's I mean, that's a popular cultural view rather than a scientific view. And, and what, um, going into the more scientific stuff, uh, what does archaeological evidence teach us about the, the lives of women in the Viking Age? Well, the, lots of things, <laughs> of course. I, I, I think that what I would like to stress is actually that we look at Viking Age people, and women are, of course, Viking Age people, just as men are, and children yeah. and old people. And, and, and we have to understand the archaeological material from all these perspectives, um, what we have done wrong, and I think we still do wrong, is that we tend to interpret archaeological contexts differently when we think that they have to do with the female part of society or the male part of society. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we do today, not something that they did then. Uh, and, And I think that all prehistoric societies were divided into roles. So there were typically female roles and typically male roles. Um, but how we consider those roles, that's our modern interpretation. Mm. So when we look, for example, at the at the grave material, grave archaeology, when we find a female skeleton with objects in a grave, it's quite often that you can see the interpretation that if they're, for example, uh, trading tools like scales and weights and and coins, that this woman must have been part of a trading family. Mm -hmm. While if you find them in a male burial, you would read the interpretation slightly different and he was a trader. Right. So we, we take away the agency in many of our interpretations of, of Viking Age women and when we do find areas that we can consider to be particularly female, like um, textile production, for example, uh, again, this is interpreted, maybe they have the agency of producing textiles, but that could almost be considered to be like a household chore rather than a line of work, Uh, which of course also is our modern view on an old material. And I, I would like to stress in that for example, the textile production is what brings pre-modern society into modern society with industrialization, uh, that the first machines are machines in the textile productions. Right. So when we look at the archaeological material, we will find both men and women uh, being active and uh, leaving objects and, and uh, practices behind them. But we need to be more aware of how we interpret, I think. Uh, and we will get much further <laughs> in yes. our understanding. A lot of the archaeological research that you do takes place at Birka in Sweden. Can you tell us a little bit about why that's such an important site for Viking Age archaeology? Uh, in in Sweden, or in present-day Sweden, this is the first place where we do have some kind of urban settlement. It's the first town or town-like structure uh, at all. It's not unique in a Viking context, but it's unique in this part of of Scandinavia. Uh, So it's the first time people move into a a defined closed space, uh, living closely together, uh, where you have plots, where you put your houses, you cannot decide if you want, you cannot move sideways, you need to use your plots. And this changes everyday life for people. It's the first time that people become so specialized that they're not producing their own food, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and within this context, we can also see that, I mean, the main activities are trade and, and uh, crafts and objects, raw materials and people are coming in from all over the, the known world. So it's 
it's like a, a multicultural melting pot uh, that begins in the mid eighth century and goes on for oh, slightly less than three centuries. Mm -hmm. uh, so we can see all these elements coming in from the outside world and uh, probably Scandinavian objects going out into the outside world. But uh, so it's it's a fascinating place and it's a, it's a very rich place, both in terms of, of archaeological context, yeah. but also in information. Uh, out of a curiosity, what percentage of, because I imagine there's such a concentration of material there, what percentage of that site has been um, excavated so far? I don't know the ex exact percentage, but there are, for example, there are over 3,000 graves or burial mounds. So I, I would say that there are many more graves on the island, but we haven't, we, we can see 3,000. And out of those, approximately 1,200, so slightly less than half of them have been excavated. Uh, the fortifications, there have been excavations within most parts of the excav uh, of the fortifications, but they, they I mean, they're small uh, peepholes, if you consider the whole yeah. uh, stretch of, of, of the fortifications. And then within the settlement area, <sighs> less than 10 percent probably of the black earth so it's it's um lots of information but there is much much more still in the yeah. earth well that gives you plenty to do right yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> now burke has been an intriguing site for archaeologists for quite some time going back to at least the late 19th century so can you tell us a little bit about the discovery of the site and the earliest excavations there sure that's it's um Birke as a place it's. I'm. I'm not sure that Birke was ever forgotten. Uh, it was. They. The. The Viking Age people left Birke in the late 10th century, uh, but it's been probably known ever since then. And and there's been unscientific excavations going on in the 17th century, for example, and the 18th century. But in the late 19th century, there was. Um, uh, a geologist uh, and an entomologist, Jalmar Stolpe, who uh, was trained in, in uh, the methods of natural sciences and he uh, was used to to um, documenting in stratigraphic layers, etc. And he came out to Birka because he heard that there were lots of, of uh, amber and within those pieces of amber there were fossilized uh, uh, insects mm -hmm. uh, so so that's why he went there from the beginning and, and his very first day when he's taking a walk along the the, uh, the shoreline he can see that there are interesting things going on in the landscape that he understands must be made by humans and he starts to drill small holes looking at the the soil layers and he decides that he, he <laughs> He's not interested in the insects anymore. He wants to do an excavation. And he's not an archaeologist, so he gets lots of critique mm -hmm. um, from from archaeologists at the time, uh, saying that he's not uh, trained for this. Um, but instead, he, he actually he writes his thesis on Birka, and he introduces all these natural scientific methods within into archaeology. Uh, and, and that's a very good thing because we can still use his excellent documentation today. Mm -hmm. So he he draw everything to scale on millimeter paper. And he, he there's even a, um, a journal article where he um, he writes about the, the, the methods and that this is what we actually should use when we do archaeology. We won't understand anything if we don't. Mm -hmm. So, so he, he's the first proper field archaeologist, I would say, in Sweden. Uh, and he continues on. He he excavated. He excavates for at least twenty years on the island, uh, and both graves and and um, the settlement area. Uh, while the graves, uh, the documentation for the graves is excellently kept uh, in the archives, we don't have his probable documentation for the settlement area. And and why it's lost, we don't know. But as he was um, so meticulous in documenting the other things he did, I would think that he did yeah. also document his, his settlement excavations. One of the, the questions that we get a lot is about Viking burial customs. What were those customs? What are the most common practices? Um, do they parallel what we find elsewhere? 
And also, what do they reveal about uh, you know, Viking religion and notions of the afterlife? Uh, well, the, the the typical way of being buried in in uh, Viking age uh, Scandinavia, and in particular this part, and, and this part is Svitjod, uh, the, the land of the Sviar, uh, mm-hmm. and it's the area surrounding Lake Mälaren, which is very close to today's Stockholm. Stockholm would be part of this, even though there was no such thing at the time. But within this area, uh, the the traditional way of being buried would be to be cremated, uh, and the cremated bones would either be just collected and and uh, still within the in the cremation layer, and and they would have raised a mound uh, over the cremated bones, or they would have taken up the the cremated bones and put them in a in a in a vessel, a clay vessel usually, mm-hmm. uh, and um, together with grave gifts, uh, and and then again made a, a burial mound, and these. Burial mounds and cemeteries with mounds, uh, they are connected to the farms or to the villages where people lived because this was a way of of showing that you had the right to be in this area. This is a time before owning uh, land. So you, you had power over people, you didn't have power over over land mm. and you didn't own land in the sense that you would do in, in the medieval times. Uh, but instead, you could show that you had the right to use the land because your family had been there f- for ages, more or less. And if you could show that you had been there for a particular number of, of generations, you were Udal, uh, you had the undiscussable right to be there. Mm-hmm. So it was very important to link the place where you lived uh, to your ancestors and to surround yourself with your ancestors. Uh, and this is particularly interesting when it comes to Birka because in Birka there's nothing before the town so people move into this new social structure and they're leaving their farmsteads and their villages behind and and then also their connection to their ancestors um, before them and they start to bury their dead in connection to this town instead Uh, so there are huge cemeteries surrounding the town area where people are buried in in a new context, uh, and quite a lot of them are still cremations. But we can also see that they start to use other ways of burying their dead. So there are inhumations, um, mm-hmm. people being buried in coffins, probably influenced by Christianity, although they're not necessarily Christians, uh, or inhumations where they've just put the body in the ground without a coffin, and then the third type. Uh, that is relevant for the the BJ581 burial, and those are called chamber burials, where they've built like a subterranean uh, chamber of wood underneath the ground, and and these chamber graves are often the most extensively furnished and, and rich in grave goods, but also in in um, they differ from each other. I think there is something like 111 excavated chamber burials in Birka. Uh, and they have no parallels within any geographical region, but they are, um, you can find them in other Viking towns. So so there's something, there's a connection between these urban people and the chamber grave burial rites. Now, are the uh, chamber burials typically for high status individuals or does yes. it? Yes. No, okay. definitely. Uh, and and. I must also stress that there's there's a lot of people lacking in burials yes. <laughs> from the Viking Age. So um, even compared to other periods before the Viking Age, where we can see that a larger part of the population was actually buried, uh, something is happening during the Viking Age when people are not getting buried in a way that we can find today. Uh, so being buried, getting your own uh, grave mound, shows that you are someone special already in the beginning. Uh, we can also see that there is a lack of children. There should be many, many more children in the burials than we find. Mm. Uh, so children were treated in a different way. I mean, they can have been been uh, treated ritually after death, but not in a way that we can find. Right. Now, obviously, if a person is buried in a lavish fashion or given a burial mound, it speaks to their status in that society. But what about the items buried with the people, regardless of their status? What do the burial customs and the, the items found within the graves reveal to us about medieval Scandinavian religion and their beliefs in the afterlife? 
And and I asked that knowing full well that it, it's an unfairly broad question for this interview. Yeah. See, see if you it, can it's a, it's a huge question. Um, but many burials contain burial gifts or, or grave goods. Uh, not all of them. Uh, and, and some of them, very few grave gifts, but still something. Uh, this might show that they were thought to be used in the next life. Um, we have ideas about uh, some of the places where you could come, where, where you um, went after your death. But we also think that people actually, many people didn't go anywhere. They were just dead. Yeah. Uh, uh, and what we know is that contrary to a, a Christianity, you, you don't accumulate good deeds. Uh, it's very decisive how you die. Mm -hmm. So if you die uh, on the battlefield, you get a chance to go to the good places, for example, Valhalla, etc. Uh, but if you are a warrior and you die at home because you're old and sick, you don't get to go to Valhalla. You, you, you die as an old and sick person. And then you get to go to hell or right. to no place special. So, so it's it's very much about how you die, um, not what you take with you, right? Not what you take with you, and not what you what you've accumulated during your lifetime. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, we know that uh, the, the burial in itself was a, a spectacle where the people that survived the dead person, they, they made a statement through the burial uh, so that the funeral pyre, for example, uh, shows that if a, a, a person that would have been high up in, in society would have a larger funeral pyre with higher temperatures, things are, the objects put on the fire would be more destroyed to us as archaeologists. Mm -hmm. um, and there's even research on um, on the graves, especially the chamber graves, where you had the possibility to go into the grave repeatedly and, and change things because it was a room. Uh, and and uh, Professor Neil Price has done uh, research suggesting that there was some kind of almost a, a death theater where mm. you staged different, maybe passages from the sagas or from uh, religious beliefs or, or, or oral traditions that you showed through the burials uh, and and when you compare there are similar traits within all the graves but there are also great differences so it seems like they they could do it in several ways um and and that it was personal to who was buried and to that person's family and so the, uh, the, the, the grave goods end up being more likely tokens of uh, both respect and affection uh, rather than something that uh, indicates some belief in, in afterlife or what they're doing there, right? Maybe. Uh, it's difficult to know, actually, yeah. um, of course. And, and we also, there's also the, you always have to consider the, the grave goods relation to the dead individual is it the personal belongings or are they only symbols of something uh, what we know for sure is that they are the choice of the people that survived the dead person right. they've staged the burial and they wanted to display something they it's their story so to say right um and and through the ritual through the burying ritual um they would also make a new uh, memory together, they will show their uh, strength as a group and they would create something that would unite them mm -hmm. uh, in the future. So, so it's it's part of a, a much larger context <laughs> yes. than, than just the actual grave. Now, grave BJ581 at Birka uh, emerges as a very special grave um, and special for a very long time. Can you tell us a little bit about its history, uh, when it was first excavated and what they found there? Uh, yes, it was uh, Jalmastolpe, this this geologist entomologist, who excavated it in 1878, and already then he stressed that this might be the most fascinating grave in Birka, and he'd, I mean, he'd he'd excavated quite a lot of them, um, so probably a little bit more than 500 mm -hmm. before he named this one. Um, 
uh, and he made especially took a special care when he excavated it with with uh, even higher level of, of uh, documentation than for the other graves. Uh, it was there was there was a, a huge stone boulder on top of it that he had to to blow away with dynamite wow. uh, just to get down into the grave. Uh, and Is and that, he uh, you still do that in modern archaeology. Uh, no. <laughs> Although it could be a good function, um, and no, he, he didn't destroy the grave in any way. But of he, he um, well, he, he, as with all of the other graves, he took uh, the bones and the objects into the Swedish History Museum called the the Historiska uh, Museet in the late 19th century, and they've been all of them have been kept in the archives or collections of the museum and still are there, um, but. Very early on, uh, the skull uh, gone missing, <laughs> really? and we think yes, not not the mandible, not the the lower jaw, but the skull. Uh, probably because this was a time when there were um, there was a, a great interest in measuring skulls. It's not ethical today in right. any way, and and it's not really scientific. But that that was fashionable research uh, in the late 19th century and and there were several scientists collecting skulls uh, and trying to to make science of it so maybe the skull is within one of those collections and we the swedish state has those collections but they're not m- marked in the same way yeah. so we need to we, we have started to go through and look for for the skull hoping that we would find it but um do you do that by just trying to match up the mandible to the to skull, or is it more scientific than that? Yeah, the first step would be to match, uh, but then of course we need to do uh, genetic testing yes. to uh, to confirm that it's actually a a, a match. Uh, but we're not there yet, mm-hmm. and and uh, we are hoping because from very early on, all of the every single bone in the grave has been marked in ink with a grave name, so it states BJ five eight one. Uh, on every rib, on every, I mean, every bone. Um, and we are hoping that even the skull might be signed, uh, but mm. not in a way that's been easy to find. So so that would be a good indication. Yeah. And and the Birke material has been researched ever since it was picked up. Um, so all through the 20th century, it's been in different researchers' care. Uh but it's always been in the collections of the Swedish History Museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, some of the material got mixed up because it was handled quite a lot. So in the 1970s, two osteologists wanted to go through the skeleton, the skeletal material again to see what graves were mixed up and what graves could actually be used for research. Uh, and, and they made a list and... Um, they looked at this grave in particular as well, and and, um, cons- and could just they 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 saw that these bones were probably female, and that mm-hmm. it was a perfect match to what the the skeletal remains in that grave should be. But they never actually looked at the at the objects in the grave. So so they because they were just interested in the skeleton, mm-hmm. so they didn't make the connection that oh, it was. Uh, um, Somewhat spectacular. <laughs> what a huge miss! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and how much of the skeleton do we have, aside from the missing skull? We have uh, all parts of the body are represented, but not all of the bones mm-hmm. have been preserved. Um, so there's, uh, and with that said, Birka, the soil in Birka is not very good for preserving bones. So this is a unusually well-preserved skeleton. Birka standards, mm-hmm. um, and and this one has, for example, it has its full spine, uh, most of the ribs and uh, the pelvis and the femurs, and the, the most parts are there, but not complete. BJ five eight one stands out as a rather special grave, in part because of the remarkable items buried with the body. So, can you tell us a little bit about what these items were and what they tell us about the the person buried there? Um, well, the, this is, as I said, this is a chamber grave, and it's a very rich chamber grave, and it's one of the richest or, or most extensively furnished graves in Birka. Um, but if you compare it to the other 
most extensively furnished graves. This one has a very, so it's, you have the full, the complete weapon set. Uh, there's a, a sword, an axe, a battle knife, arrows collected together as if they were put in a quiver, although the quiver is gone because it's um, deteriorated. So there should have been a bow, um, that, but, but that's also organic material. Uh, two spearheads. Um, uh, there's uh, the two horses in the grave. So there are the fittings for the horses and also stirrups for the rider. Uh, and then there is uh, a cauldron, uh, parts of the dress, and also a, a gaming board with uh, 27 or 28 gaming pieces. Mm. So there's, it's, it's a, there are lots of objects, but everything in the grave, apart from a weight, there's one single weight within it, is connected to warfare. Yeah. And obviously the assumption because of the grave goods there was just that it's a man, correct? Uh, yes. And it, it's, I mean, that's, the interpretation that I would have made as well. That's, mm -hmm. It's a, a normal interpretation. Uh, and it's also been interpreted as a warrior. Uh, and and I, that again, that's not every grave that contains weapons right. does necessarily have to be a warrior. That's, that's not how we would interpret graves today. Uh, weapons do not make a warrior. Uh, but in this particular case, the complete this complete set of, of weaponry and and the logic behind it, um, and and the general presentation within the grave mm -hmm. uh, makes it a very plausible interpretation that it's actually a warrior and and it's been interpreted as that again and again as late as last year it was again written about as uh, a warrior grave mm -hmm. uh, or it could be a leader in society or it could be a great martial leader etc and you will find this in an, almost any book on the vikings that that compile interesting viking age material so it's it's a it's a good interpretation mm -hmm. but it's also the standard interpretation uh, do you know if the um, the weapons have been analyzed and determined to be functional weapons or these um, kind of ornamental ceremonial or decorative weapons <laughs> Uh, they're definitely functional weapons. Um, I mean, I, my, my, most of my work has actually been done on warrior, Viking warriors in Birka. And, and even though weapons are decorated, uh, there are very few decorated weapons in, in the Birka context. They're actually more tool-like. But even a decorated weapon is totally functional. You can still kill someone with it. <laughs> so, so break very I, easily, though. Well, uh, not the kinds of decorated weapons that we would see. Uh -huh. uh, I mean, they have inlays of, of uh, um, silver, for example, or there could be uh, advanced met met metallurgical uh, inlays in different colored irons. Um, but they would still be very highly functional. Okay. Um, so it's, it's, of course, there are uh, objects that we could interpret as, as um, uh, symbolic. But I think you should be, we should be careful in, in just saying that weapons are symbolic because they're diff they're, they are also functional. Uh, and and I don't think that Viking Age warrior would distinguish between they they were highly symbolical, but they were also highly functional, and 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 uh, for this particular grave they are all very functional. Okay. They're, they're tools. Are there other examples? Once we determine that this is a a Viking Age woman, do we have other examples of Viking Age women being buried with weapons? Uh, yes, there there are quite few women with weapons, but most of them are very clearly are archaeologically very clearly women with weapons because they also have female dress objects for example uh -huh. uh, dress jewelry so so it's easy to see that this is a woman and she's also got a weapon like an axe or very seldom swords but mm -hmm. could be a spearhead or it could be a um an axe for example uh, but this particular grave there is nothing indicating that this is actually a woman in the archaeology. So there's no female objects whatsoever. 
which makes it even more interesting, of course. But there are a couple of other graves that we think are more or less the same in, in, in this sense. And mm-hmm. the two uh, Norwegian graves, one was excavated in, in uh, the turn of the century, 18, 1900, uh, and then again one uh, in the mid uh, or 1970s, maybe 19, something like that. Um, and both of these also only have uh, male-connected objects or weapons. Um, and of course, this this is an archaeological interpretation of what we consider to be male or female objects. But mm-hmm. if yeah. we use the archaeological standard, there are no female objects within these graves. So there are a few. Uh, and, and actually, I, I think... I don't think there are a lot of them, but I think that we will find more if we start to look for them. Now, I know um, several years ago, one of your co-authors, uh, Anna Kjellström, looked more closely at those bones uh, from BJ581. Why, why did she decide to revisit them? She had an, uh, a research project. She's an osteologist, uh, mm-hmm. and she wanted to uh, look into what happened to people when they moved into these early towns, what happened to their health, for example. Uh, and so she went through the Birka material and to compare it to uh, rural cemeteries and the early medieval town of Sigtuna, which is also located in this area. Uh, and and uh, as Birka is the first town, uh, that's an interesting comparison to to um, both these two sites. So she wanted to, to see if people, when they died, how they lived, uh, if there were differences between men and women uh, in terms of health issues. Um, so that's why she started to go through the material again. Mm-hmm. So she wasn't looking specifically for uh, 581. She was looking no, no. at a broader. Yeah, spec. she was looking at all the skeletons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I said, most of the skeletons or most of the burials from the Viking Age are cremated bones, and, right. and cremated bones are much more difficult to assess in many ways. You can do lots of things with the cremated bones, but but you get a, you get more information from uncremated bones. And and as Birke has quite a lot of uncremated bones um, or burials with uncremated bones, uh, it's always interesting to go through those to compare them. And and also when when we get into the Sigtuna context, uh, which is Sigtuna is established in the late 10th century and goes on and is still a town today. But Sigtuna is a Christian town, so all everyone got an inhumation in a coffin. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's a, a much more extensive skeletal material, but it's very important to try and contrast it to what happens before people were Christianized. And, and then after um, Kjellstrom's study, uh, what prompted you guys to, to look further into the sex of the skeleton specifically? Um, uh well, we work together, Anna and I. Uh, we still do, and um, I'm the the Birka specialist, and she's the Sigtuna specialist, and and we were both engaged in a large archaeogenetic project, looking into uh, the genetic origins of skeletons within present-day Sweden from all periods of prehistories. So there's Stone Age and Bronze Age and, and Iron Age skeletons within that study, and we we got to choose, we are both part of the so-called Iron Age group, and we got to choose what skeletons the geneticists would analyze. Um, and we wanted to, I mean, Birke is such an important place in in when we tried to write the history of this area. So we wanted skeletons from Birke uh, to be part of the study. And, and as this BJ581 was one of the best preserved skeletons, we would have included it in any case, but now when we also had this interesting question of, of uh, sex assessment, that was one of the good questions that we could ask. Uh, so, so even if it had been just a skeleton without any grave goods, we would still have included it in the study because it's so well preserved. Now, I know your paper says that you used uh, nuclear DNA and strontium isotopes to learn more about the skeleton. What exactly does that mean in layman's terms? The layman out there need more information. <laughs> well, I'm not a geneticist. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you send those off, right? Yeah. Uh, well, we we don't even send them off. We have geneticists within the project, so we work oh. together uh, and try to explain to each other what we are doing and why. 
But what we have done is we've taken genetic samples from a tooth and from uh, the upper arm of, of this skeleton. Uh, and until very recently, when you did DNA studies on old material, on archaeological material, you could only get fragments of the DNA uh, and you could only get what is called MT, mitochondrial DNA. And mitochondrial DNA is outside the core, the cell core, and it only tells you about what you inherited from your mother and what she has in inherited from her mother. So it gives uh, a, a particular information, but a very limited information. And with new methods that have developed during the last 10 years, uh, we can go into the core of the cell and pick out DNA from the core, and that contains all information. Uh, but it's still broken. I mean, it's still old. And, yeah. and sometimes we don't get anything. We don't get any answers because there's no information left. Uh, but what they've um, succeeded in doing is to to clean the DNA from, from uh, contamination. So they now are 100% sure that they're examining the old DNA from the skeleton and not their own DNA, for example, or the DNA from uh, spores or, or mushrooms living in the earth. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so it's it's they know what they're doing and they can get extremely interesting results. But in many of the cases when we do ancient DNA, the DNA is just too broken to give any information. Mm -hmm. uh, in this case, the DNA was quite good, not as good as in some of the other skeletons that we have analyzed. Uh, and it tells us not only the sex of the individual, but also a bit about its genetic origin. So we can see that uh, she has uh, a heritage from the western part of the Viking world. So she could be born in what is today Sweden, uh, but she could also originate from Norway or, or Denmark or even the British Isles maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and that's very interesting because when we look at the archaeology of the grave, both the way it's presented in the grave, but also the dress that she has been wearing, uh, the closest parallels to that are found along the eastern route. So it's it's been suggested since the grave was excavated that, that this is a warrior that's traveled down to mm. Kiev and, and maybe even Constantinople. Mm. So she's very much in the middle of the world that she was active in. Um, and then we could, uh, another piece of the puzzles, puzzle is that we've done isotopes on her teeth, on three teeth, on her molars, uh, and, and the strontium isotopes that show the geology in the area where she got the teeth. So when she yeah. was a baby and when she was like three, four, five years old, and then again when she was in, a, in her early teens, mm -hmm. up to 15 maybe, uh, and we can compare the strontium levels of her molars to the baseline of the Lake Melloran region where she was buried. And we can see that she's not local to that region. And we can also see that the, her three molars differ from each other. So she's been moving around during her childhood and, and uh, teens. Yeah. So she's had a very itinerant lifestyle and she has a complex background. And she's also probably in her adulthood been traveling the Eastern route. So it's, so it's, with all these pieces of the puzzle, we get a, a much, much fuller picture than yeah. when we only had the archaeology to interpret. Yeah, yeah. the, the strontium isotope research being done now is so fascinating. I, I learned about it several years ago from my friend, uh, Jamin Wheats, who was using these methods to examine the genetic origins of medieval Irish populations. And the kind of detail that the, these strontium isotopes in teeth in particular uh, can uncover is just mind-blowing. Yeah. It, it's, it's really incredible. Now, one of the uh, the big questions surrounding the grave now is whether it's appropriate to lab the, label this individual as a warrior. So let's um, investigate that just a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, you explained in the article that you found no indication of pathological or traumatic injuries. Is is that in any way problematic for the conclusion that it's a warrior? I don't believe so, actually, because there is no template saying this is what a warrior should look like. We mm -hmm. don't know. Uh, and, and, of course, traumatic injuries 
could indicate that this has been a person active on the battlefield could also indicate that somebody has done nasty things <laughs> to this person. We have mass graves with children that have been slain with, with swords or axes and, and we don't interpret those as warriors. Right. They were just killed. Uh, so, um, and, and to let, look for stress uh, where the muscle... Right. Uh, again... We don't really know what that should look like. We know that there are those kinds of indications for people working as smiths, for example, but right. they use one arm uh, repeatedly. Right. And I believe they can also sometimes tell if a person was an archer from the, the, the stress on the shoulders. Yes, but that's the same kind of, of, of uh, repetitive action. Uh, if you... If you're not an archer, if you're not a smith, but you work the fields on a farm, you would probably have uh, used your muscles quite sure. extensively as well. So, so I think it's it's an interesting thing to to discuss, but we don't have the answers, and we don't know what to compare to. There's no scientific study actually showing this is what you should expect sure. from a warrior. So, um, I don't think it's problematic as such. Uh, then. The bones are, even though they're well preserved to be birka bones, they're not well preserved <laughs> uh, in comparison to to other bones. So there's lots of information lost, especially in the surface, yeah. on the surface of the bones. So there can be indications that we cannot see today, mm -hmm. uh, and and also there could be indications of how she died that we cannot interpret today. It could be in the uh, so, skull as well, right? It could be in the skull, definitely, uh, but lots of injuries are deadly without uh, marking the bone. And when we look at the Viking Age grave material, most of them do not have traumatic injuries, May fewer than we would expect. Yeah. And, and why, we don't know. Uh, is it because the injuries... <laughs> If I if I put it like this, we have a, a very interesting medieval material from the late 14th century uh, called Korsbetningsmaterialet, and and it's from a battle. We know it's from a battle. It's a mass grave or three mass graves from from a particular battle that uh, on Gotland in 1361, and and we can see that these three mass graves represent three different parts of the battlefield, where the the soldiers that had the most the, the the best equipment, the heaviest armor, they also have the fiercest wounds uh, mm -hmm. and the most uh, trauma to their bones. While the people that were already injured, already too old or too young to be part of a battle, but were there anyway, uh, they're buried at the back of the battlefield, and um, and they do not have the same amount of trauma to their bones because they didn't have any protection, mm -hmm. so they were much easier to kill. Uh, so um, that's drastic, and, and it's a terrible event, but it's very interesting in terms of what we would expect. We yeah. know that all these people, and there's almost 2,000 skeletons within these mass graves, all the, all of them were part of the same battle, so we know they were actually active. Mm -hmm. uh, but they display quite different uh, traumas to the bones. Yeah, and, and I forgot to ask you, how old do we assume that the woman in grave BJ581 was at the time of her death? Uh, she was slightly over 30 when she died, okay. so middle-aged yeah, uh, for, for that time. And as you know, uh, the article has created quite a lively response on the internet. How are you dealing with this newfound celebrity status that you've got? Um, <laughs> um, I'm trying not to think about it. Uh, I mean, it this is... To us, it was an extremely interesting study, and, yeah. and I've been working on Birka material for 15 years. So to me, it's it's really a big part of a picture that I'm trying to, to puzzle together and have been puzzling together for ages. Uh, but this was actually the third journal that we sent, we submitted the paper to, mm -hmm. and two other journals said it was, they didn't even send it on review. They said it was not interesting enough to their readers. Huh. So we weren't expecting it to be such a... Um, How interesting. The attention was 
yeah, a bit unexpected. To us, it's really interesting, of course, but we, we're Viking nerds. Yeah. This is, well, and it's do. always nice when some, some light gets shed on the things that we love. Yeah, but but still, I must say, this is a spectacular grave. It's been a spectacular grave since it was excavated. Right. Uh, but it's just one grave. It's mm-hmm. It tells an interesting story about one grave. We don't say anything, or it doesn't say anything about the total social structure or if there were loads of Viking female warriors. So it's just this one unique grave. And and it's really, really interesting and it has lots of information and it has lots of information concerning Birka. Uh, but the amount of attention that it has gone from Viking academics, I think, is still surprising because it's, as I said, it's just one example yeah, with with all of the kind of what we call clickbait headlines and and posts uh, about your article out there, um, have you read any of them? What have your What have your impressions been, and what kind of crazy things do you see them saying or drawing conclusions from your article about? I I've actually I've not read most of it. I have not read. I've I've read uh, the academic response and yeah. uh, the the media rather than the social media. Uh, but the general picture that I get is that most of them have not not actually read yes, the paper. That's right. <laughs> and they just even, read the title. Yeah, and even fewer have actually read the complete paper, which includes supplementary information as well. Yes. Uh, so, so that's a start. What amazes me is that to some people it's so important that this is not a woman that they can explain it in almost any way. Yes. <laughs> uh, and and. What we've actually done, we haven't changed anything in the archaeology. We have just uh, found out that this was actually a woman, and it's been a woman. Mm-hmm. It's never been a man. <laughs> it's 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 from the day she was put into the soil or the earth, she's been a woman. Uh, we just didn't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, and we haven't even changed the interpretation of the grave. We just state that in this grave there is a woman, uh, and and it is a bit amazing that it's been it's become too much to digest. Yeah, I'm sure. For some, yeah. actually, and, and I don't know if you uh, you took the time to read Judith Jess's critique of uh, yes. of your study, but but if you have, how do you respond to some of the things? I know you've already mentioned uh, some stuff that would cover it, but is there anything we didn't cover so far that you'd like to talk about? Well. It's it's a delicate matter. I think that we were always open to discussing the interpretation of the grave. Uh, and as I said, we haven't reinterpreted it. We had just changed the sex of the skeleton. So the interpretation that it's a warrior's grave is the old, uh, commonly used interpretation, which of, of course should be discussed, uh, mm-hmm. but it should be discussed even if it was a male skeleton. Um, what I... I'm a bit disappointed about is is the way uh, <laughs> some of the critique is is more trying to undermine the the seriosity or or the right. the it's yeah, a tone the, issue right it's a tone issue and and it's also I've been working with Birka and I've been working at the Swedish History Museum for many years and I know that no one of the critiques or the critics have actually looked at the material. So you that they are welcome to come and look at the material and they will see that it's the right bones, it's the right grave. Uh, it's it's not speculative. <laughs> we right. we have uh, the material is is uh, very well documented and, and sound and the analysis that we have done are also well performed and, and could be redone and confirmed again if, if that would be of interest. But the interpretation needs to be discussed, as always, uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think we should focus on the discussion on that rather than uh, saying that this, these are not the right bones or, or there could have been a second body within the grave that is now gone. Uh, all these, to me, kind of strange uh, ways of, of um, uh, I don't know, um, as if they're trying to find a way for it not to be a woman. I think, as you yes. said at the very beginning of the of the interview, yeah. right, that people are seem to be uh, desperate for it not to be a woman for some reason. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And and um, when we actually should inter- we should discuss 
how this should be interpret, interpreted. Where was she a warrior? Was she a symbol of something else? Was she a representative of a social group? Was mm-hmm. she? I mean, there there are several interpretations. How does she relate to uh, the ideas of the sagas? How does she relate to the depictions of women with weaponry that we can see on on amulets, for example, or pendants? There is a, a whole world of interesting discussions that we should have. Exactly. Now, are you planning any uh, further studies of this particular skeleton or of the grave goods? Um, or are you working on just moving on to new projects now? Uh, we are all engaged in new projects and we, we are still working as a group looking into the, the genetics of, of ancient skeletons. And the next study that we are hoping to be out very soon is, is on Sigtuna, on, on this early medieval town. And it includes lots of individuals. Uh, it's a slightly different kind of study, but there's uh, ADNA and isotopes within that study as well. Uh, so there will be new uh, studies coming out, but this particular grave, it's it's one grave. Yeah. And it's I been would studied love, fairly thoroughly, right? Yes, uh, and it would. What I actually would like to do, or have someone do, because I'm not the specialist in that, is to look into what her dress could have looked like, mm. the clothing, uh, because there are uh, fragments of silk within the grave. There are some interesting fittings in silver thread uh, and and uh, uh, things that would be very interesting to interpret. Uh, there actually there are small pieces of mirror glass, and and uh, it, that has previously been ter- been interpreted as fragments of a mirror, but if you look into other parallels, they could actually have been like small. Um, sequences sewn into the dress so that she would have glimmered and glittered like, mm. you, you know, the step nomadic kaftan yeah. kind of, of dress. So that would be really interesting for a textile archaeologist to, to look into uh, that part of the grave. That has not been done and, and that, I think, would prove very interesting. Now, what did people think of the clothing before um, when, when they assumed it was a Burka, Burka warrior male? It's been reconstructed as uh, one of these with a slightly eastern character uh-huh. with puff, puffy pants and a, a caftan-like riding coat. Um, and it still could be. I mean, that that's uh, the, the most spectacular part is, is uh, fittings to a cap or hat mm-hmm. uh, and, and there, because there are silver fittings. Um, and uh, there are very few parallels. There's one more um, of this type in Birka and then there's another one I think in present day Ukraine or possibly in Russia um, and and uh, I think that that's um, it's been in, uh, almost like a, the hat of a gnome or something it's been when, when it's been reconstructed we don't know that mm-hmm. it actually looked like that but but uh, it, it's a very characteristic kind of dress that yeah. is connected to the eastern route. Gotcha. But so, yeah, this does represent a new opportunity for someone. To look into that, definitely. Yeah. 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 Now, um, I don't know how familiar you are, you are with the uh, the podcast that we do, but I know uh, maybe Johnny Theris has told you a little bit. But we're, yes. we review the, uh, the family sagas uh, particularly. So I would be remiss if I didn't ask you one saga-related question to close this interview. Uh, what is your favorite saga, if you have one, and why? Oh, I think I must make you a bit disappointed oh, because no. as I my my um, as my speciality is actually looking at what the Vikings did in the East. Yeah. My favorite source material in terms of textual sources are the Primary Chronicle, uh-huh. uh, some of the Byzantine sources, Constantine Porfirianitos, and actually some of the Arabic sources that that from the already the ninth century describe oh, yes. encounters with Scandinavians uh, in the East. So, so that's what I read. Yeah. <laughs> Not as much the sagas, the sagas actually. It was more sensationalistic, right? Well, and, and they, even though there is the occasional mention of, of the movements in the East, that's not the main focus of those sagas. So, so, um, um, I would go outside. for the Eastern material, actually. Yeah. And and yeah. Uh, what what role do uh, sagas or literature or chronicles play in modern Scandinavian archaeology, if any? Do you guys look to text for information, or we do again? Uh, I think there have been 
out in the cold for some time uh, and and there's been an ongoing discussion um, of how you can use um, use the sagas if they're just fantasy or if they actually can be used as some kind of historical document and and, and they're re- regaining their status I think uh, although with that said uh, used with caution and they're often used together with runic inscriptions uh, and with archaeological materials so we, we try again to to make a fuller picture using all these different types of source materials because it's still there's so many pieces missing uh, and that we will never find all the pieces but we need the pieces that we can get yeah Wow. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I, I look forward to seeing uh, what light future research can shed on the story of BJ581 and all the other fascinating subjects uh, that we've been talking about. Uh, it, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, Charlotte. Oh, and, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. That concludes our very special episode of Saga Briefs. Uh, we've scratched to the surface, but there's plenty more to discover. Uh, be sure to look for updates as they come out in your favorite archaeology and anthropology journals. We'll, of course, use our social media to point you in the right direction as new studies are published. And you can find us on Twitter at SagaThinkPod and on Facebook where we're SagaThinkPodcast. Thanks for listening, everyone. And on behalf of John, who's missing today, bye for now. Fyrir sér alvaran Það rauður lögin